This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Uh, for those of you who are not um, regulars, we're just going through the book of Mark together. And uh, tonight is the second of uh, two sermons, what I thought was the second of two sermons, but I think it's probably like the second of three, because as I look forward to next week, we won't stay in the same passage, but so many of the themes we're going to pick up on tonight, we're going to see even next week as we work our way through Mark chapter two. At the beginning of Mark chapter two, Mark puts together five stories in a row, and we're looking at the second and the third tonight, and he puts these five stories together in a row to sort of talk through who the human opposition is going to be to Jesus and his kingdom and his glory and his dominion and the spread of his church. And uh, so tonight we're going to look at that. Next week we'll look um, even further into this idea of who's going to stand in opposition to Jesus. So I can't say everything tonight. There's going to be parts of our passage, and this is the same passage we looked at last week with a few verses added. I can't say everything that we said last week, but I'll try and give enough of a review to give you a sense for where we're at and uh, where we're going. And then uh, we'll be done. We'll sing some more and uh, say goodnight and meet again next week, Sunday morning. Um, at the Orlando Museum of Art. So let me wor- read the word, um, starting in Mark chapter 2, verse 13. I'm going to read all the way through verse 22. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And he passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins." But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. A perspective on humanity. It's not the only perspective, but it's one way of looking at human beings, you and me in particular. Just a little something for you to discuss tonight if you go to dinner with friends from your group or new friends you make tonight, or maybe a little pillow talk for husband and wife as they're trying to, to go to sleep. That this is, uh, this, is my, this is one way of looking at humanity. It's one way of looking at yourself that the world is made up of rule breakers and rule keepers. The world is made up of rule breakers and rule keepers. In our passage tonight, 
we find some who are feasting and who have given themselves over to a lifestyle of frolicking, feasting, and breaking all the rules they possibly can to have as much fun as they possibly can. They're labeled four times as the tax collectors and sinners. We'll talk more about them in a minute. In our passage also tonight, we see John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees fasting. Fasting is this idea of restricting yourself from certain things, usually food, in order to train yourself how to keep the rules. It can be very good. It can be very bad. But if you'll just think about this, I think humanity and each one of us as individuals can be thought of as primarily someone who tries to find life and meaning and fulfillment and significance and joy and value and peace, either in keeping the rules or breaking the rules. If you go to SeaWorld, as I do often, our family has annual passes there because it's so cheap and you can just go for a couple hours and have a blast. It's much, much better for our age kids than the other parks. But if you go to SeaWorld, there are certain rides where there are restrictions based on who can be on it based on height. And the most recent one is um, the Polar Express uh, ride, which is with the polar bears and the beluga whales. And um, it's themed as the Polar Express right now. And there's a motion ride, which is one of these rides you get into and you watch it on the screen and the movement of the seats. There's like ten rows, four rows of 10 people. The movement of the seats kind of go with the movie. So like in the Polar Express, when you're going down that massive slope on the train, your seat pulls forward and it's, it's very, it's, it's actually quite fun. And then there's the non-motion ride for people who are pregnant, for people with back problems, for people who are too old to enjoy the thrills of their seat moving forward just a little bit. And um, there's, also, there's also a height requirement. And so it's a fascinating experience to watch the droves of humanity look at that height requirement and look at their four-year-olds and think, what should I do here? You can almost pick off the rule keepers from the rule breakers depending on how they interact with that little metal bar that hangs from the sign to say who goes on the motion ride and who goes on the still ride. Some people put their kids right up under the bar and they play it by the letter of the law that you are not tall enough to be on this ride. We will go in the non-motion ride and I don't care how sad you are. Some people will pick up their children, <laughs> tell them to act like they're asleep and walk them through the line saying, of course he's tall enough. Look at it. I mean, I would never do this. I watched someone do this. <laughs> Believing that rules were really made to be broken. That there's just more life in shattering the boundaries of civilization than in keeping them. We talked last week about the parable of the lost son in Luke chapter 15. And Jesus in that parable tells the story of both the rule breaker, the younger son, and the rule keeper, the older son. And both of these are just misguided and in fact rebellious ways to try and get to God, try and get to satisfaction, try and get to life. Both rule-breaking and rule-keeping are wrong and rebellious and worthy of judgment because both of them are an attempt to find life apart from relationship with God 
and taking him at his word and being guided and directed by him. The problem with both rule-breaking and rule-keeping is that both of them go too far. I'm a rule-breaker. I'm a mixed bag. I've told you before I had a really strong, dominant middle sister who was a rule keeper, and I had a really rebellious older brother, and I'm the, I'm the product of those two parents, per se. And so I can see some rule keeping and rule breaking in me, but I'm, I'm predominantly a rule breaker, and I find myself breaking rules, even rules I agree with, because I just believe in breaking them, and this creates havoc in my life. But rule keepers do the exact same thing. The rule keepers are being illustrated in our text, and they are the primary enemy of Jesus. You need to hear that again. The primary enemy of Jesus in the gospel is not the rule breaker, but the rule keeper. And they're the Pharisees in our passage. From about 400 BC, so 400 years before Jesus comes onto the scene, there is no revelation from God that we have in scripture. The people are away from the land God has been relatively silent. He has not sent a prophet. And things are just going sour. And around 160 BC, before Christ, about 200 years before this happens in our text, some men get together and decide we need to start keeping the rules more faithfully and religiously and stringently so that God will come back and lead us and God will come and guide us and he'll give us a prophet and most importantly, he'll kick uh, the, the, um, he'll kick um, those out of power that currently have us in power and we'll get to go back to the land and we will be the people of power and influence and we will have life. And they call themselves the Pharisees. And the Pharisees did not just go back to the Old Testament law and the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and try and understand how do we live according to the law of God. But they did something, they created something called the oral tradition. It was the tradition where they would begin to put fences around what the law said in order to not even get close to what the law says. The perfect example is found in our passage where they're fasting. Remember Luke chapter 18 where the Pharisee walks into the temple and Jesus is telling this parable of the Pharisee in the temple and he says, I'm so glad I'm not like that tax collector over there who's an adulterer and he's guilty of injustice and, um, and he's an extortioner and I'm so glad that I do all these amazing things for you, God. And one of the things I do for you is I fast twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Pharisees would fast every Monday and Thursday. Do you want to know what the Old Testament calls for when it comes to fasting? One day a year at the Day of Atonement. And so what rule keepers do in order to try and manage God, in order to try and control God, in order to kind of call God to the mat and require that he show up and honor them and bless them for what they have done and merited and performed, rule keepers will put 104 times the amount of the law in their oral tradition in order to stay away from what God said is the law. And so rule breakers and rule keepers, those who fast in order to gain life and those who feast in order to gain life, both of them, both of us are guilty. Both are also under God's judgment for trying to find life out from under the authority of God. You see, it all goes back to the authority of God and him calling the shots and him leading and us being needy and us being submissive and us being in step with what he's doing right now and us following him. Both of them are worthy of his judgment as rebellion, but both of them 
can be forgiven and can be transformed in the gospel. When Jesus says in our passage, I am here not to call the righteous, but sinners, he has just called Levi, who is also known as Matthew in the book of Matthew. Just like Simon Peter has two names, his given name and his apostolic name, the name Jesus gives him, Levi has the same. His given name by his parents is Levi, but Jesus renames him Matthew. And he's just called Levi to come join him and to be a part of his disciples, to be a part of the 12. We talked about this last week, how shocking this is, how utterly devastating this is to someone who's been keeping the rules and trying to convince God that God now has to bless them because they've been keeping the rules. To call him to be a part of the disciples is just like calling Glaboyevich to be a part of the cabinet if you're Obama. I mean, the guy is, is guilty of fraud and extortion. He's a turncoat from the nation of Israel. Remember, the tax collectors were those who would go to Rome and they would bid on the right to get to collect taxes in a particular province. And they would go and they would pay in advance and up front all the taxes for a year. And then they would go back to where God had sent them, or to where Rome had sent them, excuse me. And they would just start extracting taxes from people far beyond what was right and true and just. And they would just take whatever they wanted. And they had all of the Roman authorities in that area and in that province, they would have all of the Roman soldiers at their disposal if someone would not, would not obey them. And they were known, we know this from historians, both Roman and Jewish historians, that they would extract payment in brutal and grotesque ways when someone could not pay. And the Pharisees are frustrated because for 200 years, they've been trying to do the right thing. And God shows up and picks a tax collector to be on his cabinet. You, you would think, you would think that God would show up and he would pick the Pharisees to be on his cabinet, to be a part of the 12. That's what you would think. It makes sense because they're already doing what the Bible says to do. They're already fasting. They're already reading and meditating upon scripture. They're already giving a tithe of everything they have. They're already praying. They're already doing all of these really good things. You would think Jesus would just recognize we're 90% of the way there. All we need you to do is just come add a few percentages to what we've been doing, and we'll be there. This is what Jesus is talking about. If you'll go to verses 21 and 22, he, he tells this, these two parables. And parables, if you're new to the Bible, is just a way where Jesus will talk in the common language of the people. He'll tell them an illustration, an analogy, a story. He will story them to help them understand what he is doing. To give you an illustration of what a parable is, um, this week my sister-in-law and, and uh, brother were arguing over something playfully, and it really was playful. And I said something like, he, he had been right in a conversation. Something turned out the way he thought it was going to turn out. And I said, Tommy, you can take a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Not the right parable to use at that time with my sister-in-law. Of course, we all laughed and thought it was funny. But the point was not that I was calling her a horse. The point was that she was stubborn, which she is, and we laughed about. So everything that Jesus says in a parable is not to be taken literally. He's just trying to drive a particular point home. And in this case, he's driving home the point that it looks like I should join in with what the Pharisees are doing because they look so similar. But when me and the Pharisees get in contact with one another, devastating and destructive things happen. Both of us will be ruined in the exchange. 
It should just make sense. There's a piece of cloth here and it has a hole in it. So what we should do is take another piece of cloth, a new piece of cloth, and put it on this old one. But the problem is just like uh, in our day and age, that something that has not been washed yet is going to shrink the first time you wash it. And Jesus is saying, it looks like this should work, that you'll just take this old piece of cloth and, or, or this new piece and put it on the old to patch this hole. But within a limited amount of time, the first time you wash that garment, it's just gonna rip apart and it's gonna be worse than it was before. Same thing with wine and wineskins. They would use goatskins in order to hold their wine. And new goatskins that have never been used before had to be used with new wine because when wine ferments, it lets off a gas that expands. And new wineskins are able to expand with the fermentation. But once they expand one time, they can no longer be used with new wine. They can only hold old wine. And Jesus' point is this. It looks like that wineskin and me as the wine would fit together. But there are devastating and destructive results when you try and put me into the pharisaical system, into what the Pharisees are trying to do. Jesus, you're like, why, why does that make, why did God choose to do it that way? Why would he not take the start that the Pharisees have and just add a little something to it? And this is why. In the gospel, Jesus is going to get all of the glory. He is not going to be a helper. He is not going to be an add-on. He is not going to be one who comes behind you and gives you a little assistance on your way. He's either going to come and be absolutely everything to you or absolutely nothing to you. I don't know if you watched the Heisman show. I I watched it because I was kind of hoping that Tebow would win again. I'm not a Florida fan, but I thought it'd be fun historically to watch something like that happen. But each one of the three um, guys, the finalists that were there, all three of them, when they were interviewed, did a great job of saying exactly what their coach told them to say. I'm just joking. I'm sure they came upon this on their own. But all of them talked about the incredible support cast around them. And when and the, uh, uh, the guy's name is it's Bradford, right? Sam Bradford. You can see it was not that important to me. When he won, his speech included, and rightfully so, it included, well, he first talked about, man, I got these amazing receivers, and every time I throw the ball, they catch it. And I've got this offensive line that's the best in the country, and they protect me so that I have time to throw the ball. And I, you know, I can't stop there. We've got this offensive coordinator over there who drew up all of these plans and all these plays. And I, and I can't stop there. We've got the head coach. The head coach is right there, Mr. Stoops. And he's amazing too. He runs this whole organization. And then there's this retired coach. I mean, I don't know if you saw it. And then there's a retired coach he had to think who used to coach. And then he came back to be some sort of coach that's not the head coach anymore. Jesus is not going to play that game. In the gospel, he's going to offer you 100% of his righteousness or none of it. You either come to him empty-handed and have absolutely nothing to give in order to gain the relationship you need with the heavenly father. You bring absolutely nothing in your hands and that is the only way that you get the righteousness of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the life of Christ, the achievements of Christ. That's the only way he'll give them to you. I was... uh, coming out of seminary, more arrogant, Eh, maybe more arrogant than I am now. I hope I'm less arrogant now. I was incredibly uh, arrogant, and so were my friends. After all, we had a diploma, right? And and we were sitting talking, and I want to get to a statement that I made because it's been one of the most arresting statements 
that we've made in our little circle of friends. I have a group of friends where I get together occasionally, either at General Assembly or at other retreats. And, and I, want to, I want to give you the context of the statement, but I want you to forget the context because that's where the pride and arrogance and the foolishness comes in. And I want you to just remember the statement. But we were talking about where we would educate our children one day. None of us had children. But we had these brilliant ideas about where you should educate your children. And um, I was pretty adamant and stubborn about public schools. And again, please don't take this the wrong way. And when it came right down to it, one of them was rather adamant about uh, Christian schools. And they said, you know, at the end of the day, I I won the argument with this statement. I said, this is the reason why I think we should all educate our kids in the public schools is because Jesus does better with prostitutes than Pharisees. Now forget the context, stupidity. I've got a pharisaical daughter at the public school right now, and I now understand that the school did not do that to her. She brought that to the equation. And I was a rule-breaking prostitute at a Christian school growing up. It's a dumb statement in the context in which I made it, but it's the right statement for when Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let me just tell you, the four gospels, the history of redemption in the Old and New Testament is the story of Jesus coming and being life for big, fat, nasty, public sinners. And so the call and the gospel is large enough for both rule breakers and rule keepers to find life in Jesus. The apostle Paul is a great example of a rule keeper finding life in Jesus. But Jesus has this trend where he does better with prostitutes than Pharisees. Do you think I'm stretching the point too far? Listen to what he says in Matthew 21, talking to Pharisees. Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, which was repentance and faith, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your minds, which is a word for repent and believe. You did not repent and believe. So you say, okay, so we know the answer to our question. Fast or feast? We all need to learn how to party. Well, the answer is clear. You know, Jesus does better with the partiers than the rule keepers. You could see why Martin Luther, now he's taken a lot of heat for this, a theologian in the 1500s said, I want you to go sin boldly. Just talking about get out there and experience some sort of sin that's radical and technicolor so you might experience the grace of God. And of course, his point is the same as my point, which is this, that the pride and the arrogance and the desire to control God with our good deeds is just as nasty as the technicolor sins of the tax collectors and the sinners. But there's just something about the tax collectors and sinners where their bankruptcy is made evident to them sooner than the rule keepers. Because with the rule keepers, what you are establishing is your very own record, your very own righteousness, your very own good deeds. And for you to come and say these are worthless is just the exact opposite of what you've been doing for so long. But on this side, when you say there is no God and I'm going to live however I want, when you come in contact with a good gracious, kind, forgiving God, and you know the bankruptcy of your life, it's a beautiful thing. It's a thing of forgiveness and grace 
and mercy. And so you say, okay, Ted, well, we figured it out. What we should do is feast all the time. Look at what Jesus says in verse 19. They Again, they said, why aren't your disciples fasting? The Pharisees were fasting 104 times a year in order to up their righteousness. And John's disciples are fasting because John is in prison and he will soon be beheaded. And they're fasting because they're mourning the absence of their leader. This is what Jesus says. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But... The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. I can't unpack all of this. There's so much going on here that we'll just have to trust that God will bring this back up later as we go through the book of Mark. But the answer is not fast or feast, but it's yes and no. The answer to the question of fast or feast is yes And no, it's not yes that, oh, well, we're supposed to have some sort of of middle-of-the-road balance. We're supposed to have some sort of eclectic mixture where we do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. No, that's just another way of trying to control our lives in God. The answer is yes, you will, following Christ, both feast and fast, but you will do so based upon a third way, and that is being wherever Jesus is. The way of the Pharisees is the way of legalism. We're going to earn our way into God's favor. The way of the rule breakers, the way of the feasters is licentiousness. I take license with the law and do whatever I want. And it's not legalism and it's not licentiousness, but it's love. It's being with Jesus and taking your cues from him. I can't unpack all that's going on here and all that Jesus is teaching about his kingdom because I just don't have time and I want to close now anyway. But the main idea is this is that these men and women who used to find life in debauchery and rebellion and being reprobate now find life in me and my leadership of their life. I'll remind you of what I said last week in closing about my children with Braden cleaning the garage with me. He's at that age where he loves to be with his dad. And of course, Maddie and Riley figure this out, that he's going to get to go to Starbucks because he's come to just be with me and I'm going to bless him with that. And they find out we're going to Starbucks like, Ooh, I want to help. I want to help. Is there anything I can do? Not for the joy of being with their father, but in order to use him to get a hot chocolate. Look at our text. Verse 16, verse 15 he was reclined, they were reclining with Jesus. Verse 16, he was eating with sinners and tax collectors. 16, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Verse 19, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And then Jesus talks about the bridegroom being ripped away from them. And the point is this, that you don't find life I don't find life in breaking the rules or keeping the rules, but I find life in being loved by Jesus and doing whatever he tells me to do in the moment that I'm in. We'll have to wait as we unpack Mark to see more of what that means. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, for who you are, for your incredible grace and your unbelievable mercy. I thank you as a man who can arrogantly uh, look at his record I thank you for the forgiveness that you give to Pharisees like me. And I can also thank you 
as a man who has been incredibly rebellious against rules that you can forgive rule breakers like me as well. Would you teach us these things? Would you massage them into our hearts? Would you help us understand who you are in the way of life? We love you. Amen.